The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Please turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 22, and we're going to continue to preach through my, my favorite book of the Bible, and this section may not be your favorite place for devotions. Your life verse may not come out of these chapters. If you read through the Bible in a year, as I know some of you are doing, there's parts of the first five books of the Bible that are harder than others, and that's the same for me as well. There's the stories of Genesis and Exodus that are, that are compelling. We like those stories, mostly. We, we see relevance in the Ten Commandments, for sure. Exodus 21 through 24 is not as, it's not as familiar. There's not as many who preach from this section, but this is a section we need as God's Word. Philip Ryken says, most people read through it, find it hard to concentrate. They don't get a lot out of it. They wonder if it's really worth the trouble, but there are many good reasons to study the Old Testament law. We just sang several of them, but he adds, it teaches us what God expects. It guides us into godliness. It exposes our sin and thus shows us our need for the gospel. But the law does something else that is very exciting. It shows us God's character. The law actually, different than any other law, helps us know and have a relationship with the lawgiver himself. So we study it to know our God. And as we apply his law, he's going to conform us more to his character. The end of Exodus 22, verse 27, the Lord says, For I am compassionate. Or your Bible might say, I am gracious. That's how he's going to sum up the section we're about to read. His law flows from his grace. So as we read this section, I want you to look for that attribute of compassion or understand it is a good and compassionate God who is revealing this. We have a big God who cares for little details about people and their property. And, and his people need to care about those things as well. We have a God of love here who is calling you to love your neighbor and not just leaving that up to you to try to figure out what that looks like to you, showing us what it looks like and also calling us to make things right when you fail to love right. And so... I'm going to read, and you're going to hear things like fields and farm animals, but we need to also think beyond that to any physical possessions and relationships of real people around us, as this compassionate God here calls us to care for others and what is owned by others. If damage or loss happens, grace doesn't just pretend that it didn't happen. We're going to see that God calls us to make wrongs right by grace, by his grace in verse 27. That's the main point of the text where it's going, and it's also going to point us to gospel grace, as we'll see. We start in chapter 22, verse 5. If a man, verse 5, causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. 
If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God and show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. Your Bible might mention judges here as God's representatives in Israel. For every, verse 9, every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox or for a donkey or for a sheep or for a cloak or for any kind of lost thing of which one says this is it, the case of both, both parties shall come before God. And the one whom God, and your Bible might say through judges, condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him... He shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. And I'll stop there in the reading for now, but Lord willing, we're going to get through verse 27 today where God says, I am gracious or I am compassionate. This is a compassionate God's word. And the title of our message is Making Wrongs Right by God's Grace. And the first point of our outline is take responsibility and make restitution. This is such an important message. Take responsibility Make restitution. I think I have a slide. We can pull this up. This will be verses 5 through 15. God is both gracious and righteous. And he calls us to both care and to be fair with others. To take responsibility means make things right. Restore. Repay. Replace what you have taken. Repair hurts where you can. Making restitution is part of biblical repentance. We heard it in our scripture reading about Zacchaeus. He wanted to restore fourfold what he had wronged. And that comes out of the law here. And this is an important principle. Our world looks different than some of the details it gives here. But we, we live in a world that wants to pass responsibility on to everybody else. Our world is not encouraging people to take responsibility for their actions, but our homes need to be different. If my failures impact other people's homes or what they own, I need to make that right. If your fence falls down or your property or something that happens there impacts your other, your, your neighbor's pr- property and what they own, you need to make that right. If your tree falls and, and damages your neighbor's possessions. You need to do the right thing. Years ago, one of our dogs got out and it bit our neighbor's dog. And and we needed to make that right with them and take care of their vet bills, but also follow up and make sure things were okay with them. Years ago, some neighbor dogs got onto our property and they they took out a whole bunch of our our chickens. And our, our neighbor came and he he made restitution. He paid extra so that we could have more chickens. We had a neighbor who 
complained about our dog just barking all the time. And so we went over with our kids with cookies to him, and we presented cookies to him. But we're, we're, we're called to, to do things, to, to do as much as possible, as far as it depends on us, to live at peace and to, to make right wrongs. There can be relational issues. There can be financial or both. We need to be responsible. We need to do our best to make things right. And verse 6 gives the example, if it causes a loss to his crops, your neighbor's crops, give your best in return. Or if you don't have that, buy to replace in return. Try to give better than he lost if you can. And in verse 7, if your burn pile wasn't put out and it took out your neighbor's fence or more, you need to restore. This is... Something even as we think about defensible space or or I've been on our property doing some clearing, trying to look also for any unsafe limbs or or just clearing things. Trying to be safety is something that's important to think about for others. Our first house in Cameron Park that we lived at, just a hundred some feet away, there was a house that actually burnt down from an accident. And and our, our home actually almost burned down. One time, our neighbor actually saw a fire that was breaking out and, and literally saved the day. He came over, with, he saw the fire was starting to go up on the wall on the stucco, and he got a hose, and he came, and he, he put it out. I, had, I was from the city originally, and we had a, a wood stove, and I knew you were supposed to put the, the coals in a, in a bucket for a certain amount of days, and I had, earlier that day had, had poured those in our in our trash can, and it seemed like it was out, but I went, and I was actually meeting with Scott, having uh, coffee at Starbucks, and one of my kids calls and said, Dad, I know Mom says we're not supposed to bother you when you're doing church stuff, but she said, you need to get home right now, because the house is on fire, and then she hung up. <laughs> I just hung up, so I, I sped home, and by the time I got there, there were two fire trucks there. And they were hosing down our smoking wall. And that was a a serious wake-up call to responsibility. And and the restitution of the bills that came after that came later. But praise the Lord, it wasn't worse. But any damages that would have happened to my neighbor, that would have been on me as well. Insurance may cover restitution in our day, but we still have deductibles to pay. There's, there's future premium impacts that can have through things like that. And what verse 14 is saying is what, when you borrow anything, you are responsible if it dies or breaks in your possession. So in our day, it could be a shovel, a lawnmower, a chainsaw, whatever it is. You're responsible to, if, if, it, if it's destroyed or damaged, to either... Uh, get something better for them or fix it, to not return things muddy or messy or with a tank on empty. Wash it, fill it with gas, get it back ASAP. The, The biblical principle is we need to treat property of others better than we treat even our own. And verse 7 says, you're not guilty if you're robbed while you're safekeeping things or or house-sitting, you know, if some armed robbers came. It's actually the responsibility of the thief to pay back restitution, double, two times whatever he stole. We mentioned this last time, but Israel didn't do rehabilitation centers. They didn't do a a prison system where the, the innocent paid for that by taxes. Citizens did not pay for a thief's living expenses and guards. It was actually the thief 
who was responsible to pay back and to pay back to the owner. We, we live in a system where taxes pay billions for correctionally for people who have stolen in many cases versus the thieves actually having to pay. But verse 7 says the thief should pay the end of it to the owner. And his correction was to be actually twofold. He was to take responsibility in God's law and economy and to pay it back. And if he couldn't pay it back, we saw this last time, there was a way for him to be sold actually, to work for someone else, someone else who would come and would pay that back to make it right, but then he would work for that person to work off that debt. And so the wrong was made right, not by being paid to the government or by the government, but by people, to people, emphasizing this principle of personal responsibility. And verse 12 explains, but if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, here's an exception, let him bring it as an evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. So sometimes there's no human to blame. There may have been a predator that wasn't owned by someone else who wasn't taking care of it. And so if you were suspected of being a sheep stealer, for example, and you can, you can show the the mountain lion tracks and the, the bloody fur. You can show what happened. You weren't liable. But sometimes people wouldn't trust each other, and there needed to be authorities. There needed to be judges before God to make sure things were done right. So that's what verse 9 talks about. When there's breaches of trust for lost things, they would be brought to God. And the word judges is used here, I think, to show that they are representing God ultimately in this if something was found and, and lost, you know, finders, keepers, losers, weepers is not a Bible verse. If you didn't know that, um, if you take someone's lost thing, it's stealing. And that would be paid back two times. But sometimes in verse 10, you suspect someone who, who did it, but no one saw what happened. And so what, what would they do in that case? Well, they could both come before God and they could swear in his name, and the oath might go something like this, may Yahweh deal with me very severely if what I'm saying is not true. And if before the court he solemnly swore that he did not do that crime he was suspected of, and there's no witnesses, the court would not make him pay. But here's, here's the deal, and here's how this would work. If he fears God... He's not going to invoke that upon himself. May Yahweh deal with me severely if I'm telling the truth. If there's any fear of God before his eyes. But even if he's not telling the truth, they could rest that in God's hands, knowing that vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay, and he can restore. But we need to not falsely accuse And what the New Testament tells Christians not to do is not to take fellow Christians to court over civil disputes. The authority to appeal to first is the local church leaders and or biblical counselors or mediators. Here's what 1 Corinthians 6 says. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints, that's the the Christians, the church. Verse 5, I say this to shame you. 
Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Instead, he says, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you are doing this to your brothers. Paul's saying, stop defrauding Christians. Stop your dirty laundry airing before the world. It's not the right way to deal with wrongs. Find a wise believer that you both respect who can help mediate in this. Go to church leaders, and if they can't help, there are ministries like Peacemakers Ministries who help Christians settle these things and not sue and not destroy their testimony before the watching world. But what if an unbeliever sues you? Matthew five twenty five. Jesus says, Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge. Some of the translations say, settle your differences or reach settlement or agreement quickly, or you will not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. Pastor Dale actually shared a story with me from many years ago where there was an unbeliever taking him to court, and now he literally sought to apply this principle, sought to make friends with this person and to reach out to them and to ask them if they could settle this out of court. And I think it was even at the courthouse that the person decided because of how he was approaching him in this way to drop the case and to not pursue that further in court. There's some cases that don't need to be civil cases of interpersonal neighbor disputes in court, but I also need to say very clearly criminal issues need to be reported to police authorities. When there's abuse, if there's a crime threatened, if there's a crime suspected, that needs to be reported to police authorities. Churches are wrong if they do not do that. And there's all kinds of damage that comes from that. When Jesus said, turn the other cheek, that, that's for a specific context he's addressing to. Paul didn't literally do that when he was being beaten illegally. He did speak of and ask questions about his rights to the officers and to the, the Jewish authorities as well. God is gracious, as, as this passage says, but grace protects the vulnerable from abuse in verses 21 through 27. We're going to look at that section in a little bit. And, and when you hurt others, even verbally, just setting aside criminally, just when you verbally hurt others, just saying sorry isn't enough. God's word is showing us we need to own our sin and its consequences. There needs to be fruit of repentance to make it right. We need to take responsibility and make restitution. That's number one. And then number two, we need to take seriously immorality and idolatry. Verse 16 now through 20, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed, in other words, a covenant pledge and commitment, so this is a, a single virgin, and he lies with her. He shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. 
You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. As we read this, we recognize our culture doesn't execute life for this. We don't do animal sacrifice. We don't do dowries to dads in our day or bride price. But we need to take seriously as the principle immorality and idolatry as God does. These are deadly and costly things regardless of how the society views it in God's eyes and even in the natural consequences of life. These are serious life-destroying and impacting things. And the scenario he gives here is if a guy talks a girl into lovemaking without covenant love, he is stealing. He is stealing her gift, what is to be her gift to her husband. Virginity is to be a wedding gift. Remember the beginning of the Bible says man would leave his father and mother And he would be joined to his wife. That's in a covenant relationship. And then the two become one flesh. That's only to happen when he's at a stage of life where he's ready to leave from his parents. He's ready to support his wife. Now they're joined in a covenant way and they become one flesh. There's a price to pay if he sleeps with her as his bride. He needs to support her like his bride in God's law. He needs to make it right with her dad. He needs to face her like a man. He needs to be a man and offer to be the man for his daughter if the dad is willing. And if the dad refuses to let them get married, the guy still had to pay big time of his life savings. This dowry bride price was a serious sum more than a, a diamond ring, it was, it was a down payment in some ways for a, a new life that he would have saved up for. Some s- scholars think it was to be an investment in her future and their future together that the dad would hold on to and, and keep safe. And if that husband were to die, there was still some provision for her. We see in Genesis 31, Laban's daughters complain that, that, that Laban's seemed to have spent all of the what Jacob had given him so that nothing was left. Apparently, the dad was not to spend that all. He was to keep it safe for the good of their daughters or maybe for future coming together and buying land or whatever that would be in the future. And her virginity, as I said before, was to be her wedding gift to her husband. It's a, it's a beautiful and wonderful thing when it's within the confines of marriage. But if a guy were to take that Gift. God's law says he needs to give his gift, pay his wedding gift. Our world lets men just hook up and be off the hook for what follows. God's law does not. God holds sinful man responsible to provide. And it says he could marry her. Sometimes that would be good. Not always. And they're not considered married in God's law just because of that union that happened. Remember, Jesus talks to the woman at the well, and he says, that man you are living with is not your husband. You're not automatically married in God's eyes because of that physical union. But even if they did not get married because the father sees things in his character, that this is not the guy for my daughter, 
the young man would still owe the price to carry her financially. Here's what Kevin DeYoung explains, that this dowry paid actually valued and protected her because, number one, he had to show that he has some money, some means of providing for this woman, and, number two, it ensured a process of formal commitments with her family. The Bible's not saying that if if this was a mistake, they have to compound that mistake with another life-altering mistake of marrying a a horrible guy. But it, it does say if the father refuses, the man must still pay that dowry, especially in that culture, it would have been much more difficult for her to be married after she had lost her virginity. And so these rules were meant to protect the woman. And what this shows us is how serious premarital sex is to God. And that there is a price, regardless of what the society makes as a, as a price, there are emotional and spiritual impacts to this. And this is calling us to pursue purity. Remember, Jesus said it's not just the act. It's lust as well. Self-gratification with pornography is adultery in God's eyes, Jesus said in Matthew 5. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says it is God's will that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should, listen to the language, no one should wrong or take advantage of another. The Lord will punish men for all such sins. When it says men there, that would include women As we have already told you and warned you, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but rejects God. This is serious to God. And we need to take seriously our responsibility to purity and accountability and even being a part of that with others. Exodus 22, 18 and 20 then moves on to the serious sins of sorcery, bestiality, and pagan idolatry. These were sins in the land of Canaan that they were going into. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but their religions had iniquity with animals and and intimacy with gods, and and their gods were even portrayed as human and beast. G.K. Beale wrote a book, We Become What We Worship. And the, the, the issue is there, what you revere you resemble when you worship animals you become like animals i think romans 1 shows that same kind of progression when it's the anything that's a creature other than the creator perverted gods will make more perverse we need to worship the true god and be like him the more we revere and fear the lord the more we can resemble the lord We can become more like Christ, not our culture. Our culture is different for Californians than it was for ancient Canaan. Today's gods maybe are more prevalent. Money, materialism, man's approval, many sacrifice for those things. People put their families on the altar. People burn their candles or their offerings on both ends to feed the idolized career that they have. Some will sacrifice relationships to fuel their false gods of success. God is deadly serious about the sins of verses 18 through 20. And verse 20 ends with devotion 
to destruction. I think all of these tie in together with idolatry. Colossians 3 says, put to death immorality, impurity, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So being covetousness, rather than being content with what you have, is idolatry that we need to put to death. The Old Testament law put sinners to death for that. The New Testament gospel says we need to put that sin to death. There is a a transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. God is showing this is serious, and even sinners were put to death for some of these things. It's still serious to God. We need to put those sins to death, the New Testament commands. The New Testament letters don't tell churches to kill idolaters. They say, keep yourselves from idols. Churchgoers who will not repent of these sins are to be put out of the church, not to be put in the grave by the church. 1 Corinthians 5 names idolatry as a sin to purge the evil person among you. That was a formula in the Old Testament of the most serious sins and penalty But he quotes that and applies that to being put out of the church. Discipleship and discipline is how the New Testament and New Covenant community is to deal with sin. Not the death penalty carried out by us. I am not called to kill sinners, but I am called to kill sin in me. That's what you're called to do. As John Owen says, you need to always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. This is important. It's also important that we don't misinterpret or misapply these laws. So for a sorceress in verse 18, our our nation's history in the Salem witch trials, I think, is an example of how that was misapplied because we are not Israel under a theocracy, God rule. We are the church under a democracy. And so... There is that same sin today. There's Wicca, there's the occult, there's other sorceries that would fall under that term. But Christians are not to stone violators. And we know that from the example of the Jewish Christians as they went out into Gentile lands. In Acts chapter 6, there's this sorcerer named Simon who meets the Christ followers. And they don't execute him. They evangelize him and baptize him. There were many more Gentiles from occult black magic backgrounds in Acts 19 who they evangelized, these Jews evangelized. Those are still deadly sins, but they didn't burn at the stake for those sins. They they came and they burned their books. They realized, this is a part of my old dark past, and I'm going to publicly repent, the Christians did. They came and they had a big bonfire where they threw all of their old life. And that's one way to to put to death that, making it dead to us, whatever you need to do with sin to to make sure there's no more avenue now to that sin. You're cutting it off. You're, You're making it dead to you. That's what the New Testament calls us to do. And in Galatians 5, sorcery or witchcraft is part of the works of the flesh that we must crucify if we belong to Christ. And don't relax when you hear those terms, because listen to 1 Samuel 15, 23. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as idolatry. We need to take stubbornness serious. We need to take rebellion serious. If you rebel against your parents, if you rebel against God-given, godly authorities, that is as serious to God as sorcery. 
the scripture says, we need to take seriously immorality and idolatry. And then thirdly and finally, we need to take care of vulnerable people. Take care of vulnerable people. Verse 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, God says, for I am compassionate. I am gracious. God's compassion is crying out to us here to to hear and to take care of those who need special care and help. God's law is full of grace to those in a difficult place, and especially to those who will call out to him. If you're in a difficult place, you call out to him. His ear is attentive in a particular way to the cry of the helpless. He's always been this way. Throughout Scripture, he's revealed this way. There's four categories. These aren't exhaustive here. We could add others to there, like the elderly and disabled. The law will later address those. But here there's four. The first four categories it gives are the sojourners, the widows, the fatherless, and the poor. And I think representing other vulnerable people, other people in difficult situations and suffering as well. But there's two appeals that God uses here. And the first is, you know what that was like when you were in Egypt. You know what that was like. And then the second appeal is, I'm gracious. I'm compassionate. You need to be this way. Remember what I did for you. Remember how gracious I've been with you. You need to be gracious with others. Israel knew oppression. They knew wrongs. And verse 21 says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Your Bible might say, Don't mistreat a foreigner or a stranger or an alien. It's the idea of a foreign resident who's come to your lands and is, is newer there, maybe doesn't, is, doesn't know the language or doesn't know certain things and is in need of help. And to mistreat them or to oppress them, a stronger word is the, the word that was used in the Exodus story when God heard about the oppression that Egypt was doing to Israel. He's telling them, don't do that. You know what that was like. Be the kind of people that I was to you and the person of their loving God. For Sojourner's Day, you could think of migrant workers, immigrants, international refugees, others that have come here for whatever reason. We can think of foreigners escaping oppressive foreign governments. How much more must they not be oppressed? We're not to treat or speak wrongly of 
aliens, people who don't look like us, us, talk like us. We're never to mock them. We can debate policies, but personally, what this passage is addressing is how can you show God's compassion to someone that you might see in your life? Like verse 27, how can you be compassionate to someone who is in from an unfortunate situation. And verse 22 extends that to the widows and the fatherless who were especially vulnerable in Bible times but are still today. I heard a statistic last night that for those who are the fatherless and the foster system, I think 70% of, of people who fall into all kinds of crimes and trouble were part of that foster or dependency system in the past Thankful for good Christians who want to come alongside that, but that's a difficult and vulnerable situation. Many of them, when they age out of that system, within 18 months, more than half of them are into crime or in jail. The fatherless, the scripture has a special place in God's heart that he's often revealed as the father to the fatherless, but we need to represent him, care for those and Orphans would be another word. that The New Testament says true religion involves taking care of orphans and widows. That's true religion. There's almost a whole chapter in 1 Timothy, that letter to the church, about taking care of widows. And the beginning and end of 1 Timothy 5 talks especially about those who are widows indeed, those who don't have family to help take care for them, those who are a faithful part of the church. The church should be faithful and caring for their needs. And if you don't, it says here in verse 23 that God will hear the cry of the vulnerable people he cares for. It's almost shocking language. I think it is to get our attention. Verse 24 says, If you wrong or oppress, you will face God's wrath and deadly justice. And I think this actually happened in the history of Israel more than one time, as the prophets would bring up and as Jesus would bring up. God has strong warnings to men who hurt the weak. To cause a child to stumble, Jesus said, deserves a violent, drowning death. Jesus said, men taking financial advantage of widows. He he said in to Jerusalem, to their leaders there, devouring widows' houses. He says, they will receive greater condemnation. And then he said, every stone on the temple is going to come down in judgment for their sin. And that's in the context of how they had been treating and mistreating widows. At least that was a, a, a part of that judgment. So many sinful men in 70 AD died. And Jesus seems to tie that in part to mistreating widows. And these men died, and now their wives were widows, and their children were fatherless. And that that judgment in, in 70 A.D. is just one example of how God judges those who abuse. Jesus was also furious with financial injustice on the poor, and he flipped the tables, remember, in, in the temple and drove all of that out of there. In verse 25, God's warning not to financially misuse any who were poor. And that was happening with many of the poor pilgrims coming to Jerusalem, being taken advantage by those money changers and how they were selling and and charging exorbitant prices and interest. 
What God's saying here is don't, don't loan to poor people to line your pockets and make yourself more rich. History tells us those ancient interest rates could be excessive, sometimes 20 to 33%. But the impoverished in God's law were not to be used to enrich yourself by interest. And Jesus took it a step further, didn't he? He says, with a poor person, we can give, not even expecting them to give anything back. We have the expression of giving someone even a shirt off your back. That should be the, the heart of a Christian for someone really in need. If someone asks to borrow something that they need even to just stay warm at night, say, say keep it. If they don't even have their necessities and you can get another one, that should be the heart of a believer. This is not a law about banks. This is not a law about businesses. Jesus, in another context, talks about how it's actually good to put money in a bank where you're getting interest. He's, he's not opposed to that. He's talking about benevolence with a person who's in desperate need, and you have the means to help them of the destitute. To reflect, verse 27, a compassionate God who hears desperate cries, the one who's a father to the fatherless, the one who's a defender to the widows, the one who cares for the vulnerables, calls us to have that heart in some way towards others. And his gracious law did better than a one-time handout. His law is going to give ways that the poor could work to gather food. We'll see that in the next chapter in a future message. Just money alone isn't always... Why is this or the best if it's going to fund sin? But there's ministries, and, and I think of Sacramento Gospel Mission as an example of a good holistic care and ministry for people who are down and out. I, I, I praise the Lord for your recent giving to the, to the poor in Congo to provide them shoes and to some of you who gave to PCS Health for some of the single moms and fatherless struggling ones in our community. I'm thankful for how you guys minister in various ways to the vulnerable and convalescent homes and some of the outreaches we have in Placerville and Sacramento, etc. I was just thinking about this. I think we have at least 18 here in our church who were born in other countries, who were immigrated sojourners at one time in their life. We have 22 at least widows or widowers around us here. There are at least 12 former orphans here who have adopted fathers. We, we praise the Lord for that. But I think we can do more, and, and I would love to do more, pray about how we can do more. I'd love to have more internationals, more vulnerables to feel welcome here and that we would think about ways we can welcome into our lives. Some of you as students may be around international students. There's, a, there's international students who come to this country who that could be a bridge where you're reaching out and helping them a bridge to Christ. Some of the countries they come from, they're not hearing the gospel at all legally. And there's opportunities around us. There's a world out there, but there's widows here. There's weak people here. There's wounded people here among us. And it doesn't have to be one of those four categories. There's people who are hurting that our heart should go out to. And especially when good men aren't around in their life. I pray that we will always be a safe place, that we would be known for compassion in action to the hurting. There's a lot more here, and I think we need to come back to this section in a future message, but we need to end.
the way this passage does in gospel grace. Because ultimately what drives all of this is that God is compassionate. That's where this section of the law ends. That's where the gospel begins. Like verse 27, if you, if you know spiritually you need a covering, if, if you cry out in faith to this type of God, he's going to care for your needs beyond your physical needs, your ultimate needs, your spiritual needs. His, his ear is ready to hear the cry of someone who knows they need help. And then that's how Jesus begins his first sermon in the Gospels. Blessed are the poor in what? Spirit, spiritually poor. You realize you're spiritually bankrupt. You're destitute. There's nothing you can do to, to pay your way or to pay back or earn anything. All you can do is beg for grace. That's the kind of person the kingdom of heaven is for. That's the only kind of person who's, who's going to heaven. Someone who came to that point in their life where they realize, I've got nothing. I'm desperate. My only hope is to cry out that God would be merciful to me, a sinner. Blessed are those kind of people because those are the only kind of people who are going to heaven. That's what Matthew 5, 3 means. It's for us who know we have nothing to give spiritually to impress God. No, we, we can't pay him back. We don't do good works to try to pay our way. We can't. We realize we are spiritually fatherless until God, in love, adopts us by grace through faith into his family and now becomes our father. That's Ephesians 1. And Ephesians 2 uses the language of strangers and foreigners. We were all strangers and foreigners to the covenants of promise, but God, but God came and he brought us near. He welcomed us. This was strange, would have been strange to all of us. We, we were so far away from all this that happened in Israel. I mean, you read some of this and it just seems so far away, but God comes from a faraway place and he brings us near through the blood of Christ and he welcomes us into his very family. Ephesians 2 says, we were sons of wrath, and now we become sons of God, and we're welcome at his table always. Peter says we are spiritual sojourners. That's our identity. We're sojourners. This world is not our home. We're to think of the world that way, and we are to be different. We are to sound different to our world as sojourners. There should be something just foreign about us that people would ask that we might be able to give them the reason for the hope that's within us. The God who welcomes us calls his church to welcome the vulnerable and all by gospel grace. All our wrongs he made right by grace alone. He came to the earth as a poor man in Nazareth. His parents were so poor they couldn't even do the normal offering in Jerusalem in Luke's gospel. He was humanly fatherless on a human level. And it seems in the gospel record that Joseph at one time had died. So he, he knew from his own household, through his own mom on a human level, what it was like for someone to be widowed. On the cross, Jesus asks John to take care of Mary, apparently because there was no one else to take care of her. Jesus knows what it's like to be a stranger to his own people. To his own people. I remember growing up in, in the Philippines, being a, a sojourner and a, and a foreigner, and, and I, I just didn't fit in, but I'd come back to the States, and I'd been gone for a few years, and I, I didn't quite fit in here. And that was harder with your own people when, you're, when you don't fit in with your own people. Jesus, in an infinitely greater way, knew what it was like 
to be rejected by his people, to be mistreated, to be oppressed truly, to suffer all manner of evil against him falsely and abuse verbally and physically and in every way. But on that cross, he takes responsibility. He takes responsibility for our sin. He comes to restore what sin stole for us who were all naturally devoted to destruction. He came to destroy the works of the devil, Hebrews says. And he loved the church. He gave himself up for the church in the way that a husband is to love his bride. He paid the bride price for the church. He paid in full restitution for all who will confess he is Lord and who will trust his death and resurrection. Isn't that a wonderful Savior? Hallelujah, what a Savior. But we need to reflect our Savior. And Kevin DeYoung says this, If you don't care to help the weak, You are not in touch with your own helplessness, and you have not even really come to grasp what grace actually is. You say, I'm not really interested in finding weak people, helping hurting people. I'm not really interested in those who are vulnerable. You don't understand what you are and what God is like, because that's us. We are spiritually helpless. We are spiritually hurting. We are spiritually weak and vulnerable. That's the language of the New Testament, but God chooses the weak. He delights to be strong to those who realize he's the one who's strong, not us. He is compassionate and gracious, so let's love him, and let's love our neighbors. And when we don't, let's make it right by God's grace. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for God to help us. Our gracious God, we thank you for how you have been so gracious to us and how you enable us to show that grace to others. We thank you for your law and for your gospel and above all for your son who fulfilled the law for us and who died and rose for us so that we can, by his grace, fulfill these principles. Help us to live rightly Make things right relationally where we need to and be committed above all to honor Christ. And it's in his name we pray.